Game Cool Books, Episode 44, The Knife is Yours by Right. In the car together, the conversation continues. The Rolls-Royce sight of Lyra's losing something so crucial becomes redeemed somewhat, as that loss of the alethiometer itself does, by the knowledge she and Will gain there. Or at least the questions they're prompted to ask. Will's question, who is he? the man with the knife, never really gets answered. It becomes one of those stories hovering on the edges of this story. We cannot even rely on the little Sir Charles says that he has no more right to the knife than Sir Charles does to the alethiometer. It turns out to be far from unfortunate for them all. As for how he knows about the other world, Sir Charles's response is mostly just a boast that he's older and considerably better informed. But if he truly lacks knowledge of the lithiometer, that too would be a dubious claim. His, not, his remark that there are doorways, plural, is not elaborated for some chapters, but Will knew that anyway from his father's letters. Lyra, meanwhile, is getting warmer, guessing Sir Charles is from the world of Chittagatsi, yet deep down she knows him from somewhere else. She's almost certain she had seen him before. Keeping the specters away is part of the knife's power, but hardly the most relevant thing that it can do. As to why the specters attack only grown-ups, Sir Charles' dismissal that Will and Lyra don't need to know that should amply suggest just how important a question that it is, just as Joachim Lorenz already emphasized when the witches asked him that same question. When Sir Charles asks for a change, asking Laura about her remarkable friend, his attempt to derail that line of questioning inadvertently helps answer it, for it points up the difference between children's and adults' demons, that is, for the reader. For Will, it leads to the realization that the snake he saw was that man's demon. Further, he realizes that he had seen the snake without him knowing that he had seen it, much less that he now knows what he had seen. Lyra, with Pan glowering as a black rat, suffers a conversational misfire of her own next, as her dung beetle insult is turned into a royal scarab. Like the constellation of Alphiuchus, this esoteric image might bear more prolonged study by someone more knowledgeable about such things. So he's distracted Lyra with his snide accusation that she stole the alethiometer in some other world. And he's managed to learn that it did come from the Master of Jordan. But she might still be right when she calls Sir Charles a stupid, stinky old man. She certainly is when she claims the alethiometer is hers by right and would only be a toy to him. Will, though, remains observant, if less than circumspect about concealing the location of the window they found by having them go right up to it, to the ring road, to avoid a police car. So Charles's parting shot is directed at him, a threat to call the police if Will should fail, 
to bring him the knife. Knowing his real name from seeing a photo in that day's paper. Appearing in the paper seems to be one of those things that's like father, like son. Lyra tries to assuage his concern, pointing out that Sir Charles would have done it already if he was going to. I just call the police or go after Will's mom. She comforts him in his distress for the first of what turned out to be several times this chapter, just as he rescued her from despair in the previous. So who was the old man, she keeps asking herself, on the verge of remembering, but the memory wouldn't come clear. Instead, she remembers and tells Will about the man she saw up there in the tower the night before, and about her shrewd guess that he's the older brother Angelica wanted Paolo to keep a secret. Moreover, that he must be after the knife, and that all the kids know it. This last connection comes partly through the sympathy she feels for them, their fear of the Tower of the Angels, recalling her own feeling of unease in its open doorway. It's emphasized here that the kids needed a grown man to go in, but in the event, it was Lyra's own gain and wisdom which prevented her from going in. The apparent contradiction will be instructive to bear in mind as we learn more about this particular young man. With moth form pan whispering to her, we have a direct reference back to Lyra as she was at the opening of the first book. Her motivation now is different. Going into this place that she knows she shouldn't be is not some sort of bizarre desire that isn't uh, explicable. It is, in fact, the only way to make it right that she followed her desires in the first place. Their approach this time is much more prudent. They have Will along, and he goes about getting the measure of the place first. He sends Pan as a sparrow to scout at a high windowsill. Lyric gasped and gave a little cry when he was at the windowsill, and he perched there for a second or two before diving down again. She sighed and took deep breaths like someone rescued from drowning. Will frowned, puzzled. It's hard when your demon goes away from you. It hurts. Sorry. Did you see anything? He said. So Will inadvertently recapitulates that scene at the scrapyard where Lyra met Yorick. But unlike the bear, when Lyra and Pan come back together, uh, Will apologizes to them. The inside of the tower from Pan's description is like a museum with weaponry on the walls, and the young man is in there, apparently dancing. They pass through the back garden and along the other side alley and return to the front door, which is, after all, the only way in. The sensory details here contribute to the sense of time, the flagstones worn smooth, and Will chooses to explore the steps going downward first. There he finds the alchemy room, with its wall blackened by a now cold furnace, while Lyra, upstairs, hears the man first, 
sounds like he's talking to himself, crooning. And not for the last time, we're told he sounds like a madman. What Will notices next reminds us how he is once again in the place of the men who broke into his house. Going upstairs that he notices are far too solid to give them away by creaking. The light diminishing as the windows get smaller, the rhythmic footsteps, and the library where they find Tulio, with its books, with their bindings crumbling and thrown off the shelves and thrust back higgledy-piggledy, all this helps prepare us for our first glimpse of the young man. Dancing. And Lyman was right. It looked exactly like that. He had his back to the door, and he'd shuffle to one side, then to the other, and all the time his right hand moved in front of him as if he were clearing a way through some invisible obstacles. In that hand was a knife, not a special-looking knife, just a dull blade about eight inches long, and he thrust it forward, slide it sideways, feel forward with it, jab up and down, all in the empty air. Things are, indeed, odder than Sir Charles said, and odder likely than he even knows, well-informed as he supposes himself to be. In a passage that illustrates the dynamic between the two of them very artfully, we're told, She didn't question, but let him lead them up another staircase to the top story. All right, and a bit later, better go and see, Will whispered. I'll go first. I ought to go first, she whispered back, seeing it's my fault. Seeing it's your fault, you got to do as I say. She twisted her lip, but fell in behind him. Yeah. So they come to the greenhouse on the roof, where they hear the groan of what turns out not to be a threat at all. But their reaction here is very important, not just for the way that Lyra permits Will to lead, seeing that he's got the right, but also what they do inadvertently, though. So I skipped over this before. They jumped when they heard that groan. They had been sure there was only one man in the tower. Pantalaimon was so startled that he changed at once from a cat to a bird and flew to Lyra's breast. Will and Lyra realized, as he did so, that they'd seized each other's hand and let go slowly. So she lets him lead, recognizes her responsibility to listen to him in much the same language she used with Pan at the doorway, and yet they both need one another rushing together, just as Pan rushes back to Lyra. In a setup for the fight, we get the heat, the blinding light on the roof, as well as its disposition, the uh, parapet sketched for us. The old man, bruised and bound, is a figure of pity at once, and his captor, the careless rope-knotter that he is, is just as clearly a brute. In the shade of that parapet, 
They're introduced to Giacomo Paradisi, whose name carries its own weight of illusions, to Jacob, to the Garden of Eden. Through broken teeth, he names himself further the Bearer. It was stolen from him that there are fools who take risks for the sake of the knife, but this one is desperate. So, someone has beaten them, or Sir Charles, to stealing the knife. Before they can do much more than take this in, or begin to, the young man himself is there. Pan changes to a bear rears up, but he won't be able to touch him. And what had worked on the children has no effect on this man. It's as if he hadn't really registered what he sees. He is crazy. The blow-by-blow of the fight is thrilling, but it also invites all sorts of interpretation. We can't simply dismiss this as crazy. Um... Different strategies the two sides employ. Consider Tullio's brute force as he tries to trap Will in the angle of the roof, and how Lyra wields the only tool available to them, the loose rope he's provided them with, and tries to get his attention that way, and how Will counterattacks fiercely just as he had against the man in the house. And that is a reference that's pointed out for us explicitly here. Then the knife itself, we'll learn it has its own intentions, sinks as if into butter when it leaves the young man's hand, it conveys not only its sharpness, but the power of the simile, cliche though it is, also suggests the literary power of transformation and recovery of meaning from these ossified phrases. The passage which follows illuminates something about will and his self-knowledge. He had learned to fight at school. There had been plenty of occasion for it once the other children had sensed that there was something the matter with his mother. And he'd learned that the object of a school fight was not to gain points for style, but to force your enemy to give in, which meant hurting him more than he was hurting you. He knew that you had to be willing to hurt someone else, too, and he'd found out that not many people were when it came to it, but he knew that he was. Though crushed against the wall and winded, his foot down through the drainage hole, doesn't fall, doesn't give up. Lyra uses his same technique of grabbing Tullio's hair, but she's unable to get a good hold and she's thrown off. With Pan's wildcat form as ignored by their assailant as it was effective against his siblings. And there's a kind of reset to the fight now. Tullio once more holds the knife. But Will is not harmless either. He wraps the rope as protection around his hand positions himself to use the sun and the glass to blind his opponent, and then kicks at his knee, drives him back towards the glass house, and once he drops, crushes his fingers against the lead, and kicks away the knife. 
lucky to connect with its face. Though it's never described quite how, he notices the blood from somewhere dripping. It means the knife blade has hit him. It's as if it's too fine to be noticed in the welter of other details. Once Tulio goes crashing through the glass and down the stairs, and Will picks up the knife and stands ready to use it, the fight is over. But there's something wrong. In that tangle of rope, two of his fingers, Pinky and the ring finger of his left hand, fall away. So the battle's over, but the haze of it only switches into a new register with the pain. He hears Lyra and the old man dimly, her wish for blood moss, what the bears use, what she applied to Yorick's wounds after his combat. For now, all she can do is to tie the rope around to stop the bleeding. Yet another use of this versatile tool. And the scene closes with the surreal image of Will's fingers curled like a bloody quotation mark on the lead. There's this kind of morbid self-awareness, but it's a part of himself split off. When Lyra cuts off Will's deranged, self-pitying laughter, the old man is taking them inside for medicine, some salve, she tells Will. She tells him, you beat him, you won. In a room like an apothecary, and a drink like fire in him, plum brandy, there's the first part of his treatment. They have medicines for everything, Paradisi says. The knife lay on the table like a tool or a patient. But what he calls precious ointment, Will recognizes as an ordinary antiseptic cream he could have gotten any pharmacy in his world. In another biblical reference, the man handles it as if it were myrrh. Down below, Lyra sees what is at stake for Tulio in this fight that he's lost. Lyra felt Pantalaimon calling to her silently to come look out the window. He was a kestrel perching on the open window frame, and his eyes had caught a movement below. She joined him and saw a familiar figure. The girl Angelico was running toward her elder brother Tulio, who stood with his back against the wall on the other side of the narrow street, waving his arms in the air as if trying to keep a flock of bats from his face. Then he turned away and began to run his hands along the stones in the wall, looking closely at each one, counting them, feeling the edges, hunching up his shoulders as if to ward off something behind him, shaking his head. And then eventually he's lost for all his little brother and sister can do. They have to see it too, up close. And then they see Lyra seeing it. The positions of the night before are reversed. And Lyra feels Angelica's jolt of hatred. She hears Paolo's little boy's voice threatening to kill them for revenge. And she recoils, guilty. When she recounts the scene to Will later, He'll have some insight into Tulio's behavior, but she keeps it to herself for now. And reverting to Will's perspective, we see him get his bandage. As it's applied, he feels distant due to the alcohol and loss of blood. But what he has won 
unexpectedly is not just the fight, but also the knife. It's yours by right, Paradisi tells him. As the former bearer, he knows better than anyone that his time is over and the knife itself knows when to move on. He shows them how they can tell if they don't believe him. Holding out his hand, they look at it. It's been wounded like Will's. The loss of the fingers, the badge of the bearer. And like Will, he says he did not know in advance when he fought for the knife. Again, suggesting some further story about the sort of degeneration the guild and this world have undergone. Paradisi reinforces what they already know, that Sir Charles is a liar, a cheat, that he would betray them if they did trust him. But just as the alethiometer is Lyra's, the knife is now Will's, by right. Though it's simpler than the symbol reader on the face of it, this description is still full of significance for us. With a heavy reluctance, Will turned to the knife itself. He pulled it toward him. It was an ordinary-looking dagger, repeated from our first glimpse of it. With a double-sided blade of dull metal about eight inches long, a short cross piece of the same metal, and a handle of rosewood. As he looked at it more closely, he saw that the rosewood was inlaid with golden wires, forming a design he didn't recognize until he turned the knife around and saw an angel with wings folded. On the other side was a different angel with wings upraised. The wires stood out a little from the surface, giving a firm grip, and as he picked it up, he felt that it was light in his hand, and strong and beautifully balanced, and that the blade was not dull after all. In fact, a swirl of cloudy color seemed to live just under the surface of the metal. Ruse purples, sea blues, earth browns, cloud grays, the deep green under heavy foliaged trees, the clustering shades at the mouth of a tomb as evening falls over a deserted graveyard. There was such a thing as shadow-colored. It was the blade of the subtle knife. But the edges were different. In fact, the two edges differed from each other. One was clear, bright steel, merging a little way back into those subtle shadow colors, but steel of an incomparable sharpness. Will's eye shrank back from looking at it so sharp that it seemed. The other edge was just as keen, but silvery in color, and Lyra, who was looking at it over Will's shoulder, said, I've seen that color before. That's the same as the blade they was going to cut me and pan apart with. That's just the same. So that's the blade of the guillotine, silver guillotine. And indeed, it severed something from Will that he thought he could never lose. But still, it's, it's that half of the knife's power that's demonstrated now with a silver spoon. That's only half of it. The silver spoon, though, like the glass house, the warm butter, it's a cliche that's used to an unexpected purpose here and with a fresh power. There's another crucial word that appears now, subtle, that distinguishes the other edge for its ability to cut away out of the world. In Pullman's cosmography, the serpent's temptation is thus aligned with the ultimate scientific advance. It is also the power of the storyteller to travel between worlds.
Paradisi insists, as Serafina did to Lee on the balloon, that it doesn't matter that Will doesn't want this, that he has no choice. It's already done, and moreover, as we'll learn, he doesn't think that the knife was the only intelligence whose intentions have supervened in the place of Will's own. Still, the subtlety of the knife is closely bound up with the mind of the bearer, he explains. To use it, Will must think it, must put his focus at the tip of the knife, not on his wound. And there's a gap that the tip will find. Could this gap be of the nature of a wound? That speculation will possibly see some more evidence below. But speculation aside, plainly this act of focus is what Tullio, crazed as he was, and without the wound proving the knife's choice and its cooperation, is what he couldn't do. But Will too struggles at first. He thinks of his lost fingers, but still more of his poor mother, who's cut off from him and sobs more for her than for himself. Then we're told he feels the strangest thing. He looks down into Pan's eyes. The demon is touching him, licking his wound. It's a reminder that of all the worlds traversed, the distance between two people is one of the most wonderful and mysterious. It's embodied here, not in the knife, but in the part physical, part psychic form of the demon. We are reminded Will had no idea of the taboo had been restrained out of politeness rather than knowledge from touching Pan, which is as ever an interesting distinction, one that might recall Lyra with Father Coram's demon, or even all the way back to her lessons and manners from Mrs. Lonsdale, or the classic platonic distinction between knowledge and right opinion. She is breathtaking, feeling the strangeness herself, as Pan once more becomes a moth, retiring. This is like and yet very unlike Sir Charles, for Paradisi, it seems, had also seen demons before. Now Will obeys and tries again, but his determination becomes an obstacle in its own right, as Lyra and Dr. Malone and the poet Keats, whoever he was, and of course the narrator, whoever he or she is, all know that this process cannot be forced. But Lyra doesn't intervene. Paradisi's reminder suffices this time to let his mind wander, to become part of the knife, to go down it, to feel the tip and come back. And Will manages it, for an authority descends, whether his or his demons. Once more, as with John Fa. There's this good sort of authority that is associated with rightness. She thinks now how it was right of Pan to do what he did, though it was strange. And she calls him her beloved, that word Will used of his mother. And we're reminded that Will has a demon with him all along, though he can't see her yet. And the description of this is natural and purposeful as much as the way Lyra reads the alethiometer. 
Doing so, he finds the snag in the empty air. And as she had imagined ladders and mountainscapes and the northern lights to provide some analogy for that process, he imagines his soul flowing down his arm and back up, indeed, very like what Pan or any other demon might do. And like Lyra, he comes back to himself and blinks, just that momentary, just that critical, the blink of an eye. But there's more. Now he's to make a cut and don't drop the knife. He finds the gap again more easily. The analogy this time is medical. It's like cutting a stitch with a scalpel. It's possible to read into this something more about the nature of those gaps. Are they the stitching together of some primal fragmentation in the worlds? It's possible also to look forward to Will's future calling, which Pullman has suggested somewhere, I think, lies in medicine and surgery. In this dusty little room, full of the dust of time and disuse, but also the dust of Will's attention, he opens a door over a cemetery in his world. The emphasis is not simply on death, even those shadow colors we might recall from the knife, but it's like Rudiscati's flight or Serafina's own earlier. The emphasis is on the trees, the air, the smells, on Pan exulting in the freedom that this power represents by flying through and snapping up an insect and flying back. At his delight, and that's perhaps as much as guessing at what this omen of the cemetery might portend, our attention is drawn again to Paradisi's response to the demon, his curious, sad smile. But as reading the alethiometer entails its series of steps, framing the question, which corresponds to finding the snag, observing the needle move, which is like cutting through, now there's the final step corresponding to Lyra's interpretation of the answer. Will has to learn to close. His fingers must find the edge along with his soul. And maybe it's that cruel irony, that reminder of his wound, or it's just the toll of all of his effort taken together, but he can't do it at first. And Lyra can see what's wrong. She tells him, It's your wound, she said. You ain't wrong at all. You're doing it right, but your hand won't let you concentrate on it. I don't know an easy way of getting around that, except maybe if you don't try to shut it out. What do you mean? Well, you're trying to do two things with your mind, both at once. You're trying to ignore the pain and close that window. I remember when I was reading the alethiometer once when I was frightened, and maybe I was used to it by that time. I don't know. But I was still frightened all the time I was reading it. Just sort of relax your mind and say, yes, it does hurt. I know. Don't try and shut it out. So when was she reading while frightened and noticed this power in herself? She doesn't elaborate. There are many possible candidates for the context there. But her words now like the combination of Pan's comforting and Paradisi's guidance before, do the trick, they help. 
and Willis helped with the knife in a way that Lyra never was with the alethiometer, though Fartacorum had tried. And Will masters his knife much faster. It's the easiest thing in the world to close the door. In the place of the velvet cloth, the knife comes with a sheath with buckles against it, the only way to keep it safe. They go against that cross piece of the hilt. And given what Lyra has just seen out the window, the window in the world of Chitkatsi, that is, this is indeed a solemn occasion, but whatever ceremony Paradisi might have in mind is certainly foreclosed. They can't spend days and weeks on the story, the sorry history of his world, though I'm sure some fan novelist has written it by now. The salient facts, though, are briefly told. He says the specters of the fault of the guild, the result of the inquiry into the deepest nature of things. And he talks a little bit belaboring about bonds next. This is a mercantile city, a city of traders and bankers. We thought we knew about bonds. We thought a bond was something negotiable, something that could be bought and sold and exchanged and converted. But about these bonds, we were wrong. We undid them and we let the specters in. So whatever literal place might account for their origin, be it the darkness of space, or the sort of nuclear fission of splitting the atom. The moral and curiously economic accounting here is clear enough. The sort of hubris of the bond trader, which triggered the Great Recession in our world, is exactly the sort of thing which admits specters in Shigatsi. That bears really thinking about. I think the whole topic of economic imagery in Pullman's books comes as near to the surface here, in a way, as it was with the Silver Spoon a few paragraphs before, or with Will's memory of his mother in tears after their fancy party, or Lyra inscribing Ratter's name into a gold coin. Whether careless or simply forgetful, or just without time to close as they should, Knife bearers have caused more mischief than just letting in the specters. Paradisi confesses that the window Will and the cat found is one he left open himself. But Sir Charles was too clever to take the bait, it seems. Will and Lyra's shared glance, when Paradisi bids them never let him have the knife, shows that they have some important decisions to make now. The first is whether or not to trust him. Based on everything they've seen, surely he is more worthy of it than his stinky, smelly old adversary. The next thing is whether to abide by the rules of the guild as he transmits them. Paradisi being the sole reminder of what the guild used to be. Now, Lyra got one of these rules from the Master of Jordan to keep it secret. She has since derived another for herself, 
to never use it for a base purpose. Or in her words, this ain't a private peep show. The other rules are about the use of the knife. To never open without closing, and to never let anyone else handle it. They seem logical in the case of the knife, given how immediate its effects on others can be. But of course, these rules themselves are nested within still fundamental, more fundamental rules of logic and of the nature of the human actor's fidelity to them. Paradisi dismisses any other rules he might have forgotten with the remark that if he's forgotten them, it's because they don't matter. He's forced to use his own judgment here, but also to reassess one of his basic presuppositions that the bearer should not have been a child, for the mark is unmistakable. In Will's name, it will turn out, does matter very much, but not to Paradisi. His decisions have narrowed down to just one left, to avail himself of the poisonous drugs he knows about in the storerooms or the gardens or down there in the alchemy lab, to die before the specters can take him. Even this sort of negative intention, now that he has played his part, seems noble in this context. But if we take the specters as an allegory for despair, depression, can suicide really be acceptable? On the other hand, if part of what the knife represents is logic, willpower, the opening of new worlds for oneself and others, and he has given away all of that and has nothing left. Well, except there is a most surprising thing to find here. In Paradisi, there's a faith akin to his countryman Joachim Lorenz's desperate hope. You have come here for a purpose, and maybe you don't know what that purpose is, but the angels do who brought you here. Go, you are brave, and your friend is clever, and you have the knife, go. They shake hands, hand nods in acknowledgement, and what could be a more fitting ceremony than this, presided over by unseen angels? The gravity of what is about to happen rests on us as an image of the sun and the silence that goes along with that insight Serafina had into the travelers. So as not to worry Will, Lyra leads him away from the alley. She wishes they could have done something more for Paradisi. But we also might be thinking of Tullio, as well as all the other adults in the caravan captured by the specters. Will and Lyra now represent the two sides of that debate about suicide. Lyra raging against it, Will softly saying, Hush, it will be better than the specters. He'll go to sleep. She asks, What are they going to do? As she did before. It's not to burn the slumbering city, but to use its greatest treasure to get hers, the alethiometer, back. Will puts it bluntly. 
we'll have to steal it. That's what we're going to do.